Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello, and welcome to episode 52 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. So this is the forefront of a sexual revolution and the beginnings of an idea of gender fluidity and pansexuality. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Amanda Lear, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and David Bowie. I wanted to work in every style. I mean, that's the kind of impression the Beatles left on you, you know, when you realise that if you had the ability to work in different styles, then use it. Fifty years ago, Bowie began the first leg of his UK tour, previewing tracks from the new Ziggy Stardust album. For several months, Bowie and the band travelled in their van playing small venues up and down the country, sometimes to just a handful of people, refining their stage personas. This was a very important evolutionary stage for David, perfecting songs from his earlier repertoire and fine-tuning the exciting new tracks from the Ziggy Stardust album, as Tony DeFries recalls. After the Aylesbury concert, which was a great success on the 29th of January, we had planned to do many other dates, different venues. Clearly, we wouldn't get in every case, an audience as enthusiastic and prepared or at least willing to go along with what was happening. And in many cases, our audience for these next round of dates was very, very small. Sometimes simply the people we brought along rather than an actual outside audience. What we began to do here was move from the rehearsal space that we'd been in before Aylesbury, where everything was a function of rehearsing in venues where all we had were our own technical people, our own sound people, sometimes extra lighting people, but no real audience. That left us in a situation where much like trying out a play that's never been performed on stage before, or a version of a play that's never been performed on stage before, or even a play with a cast and director who've never done that particular play before, you're best off if you can put it in front of a live audience somewhere where you will be able to figure out what you need to do to fix it. This wasn't a common idea, and certainly not a common practice in the rock and roll space or in the music space in general. And the idea that we should do this primarily came from my desire to fast-track the whole process. We have to remember David was an unknown or failed or both, performer, songwriter, singer. When I met him in 1970, 
Over the space of two years, that Bowie became essentially a major British pop star and went on to become a major American and ultimately international pop star. You can't get there if you don't have some plan and some focus and help. For David, the idea of recording every live performance, which we did because we had a Revox set up at the sound deck. Our sound deck was always somewhere central to the stage. And the sound crew recorded from the very beginning to the very end. Then we could take that tape and listen to it. Initially, we'd be listening to it on David's Revox that I bought for him at Haddon Hall. Remember, this is the days of reel-to-reel tape recorders, of which there were many, but generally speaking, Revox was the best. And you could use the same tape over and over again until it broke or really got <laughs> very, very, very patchy. But initially, you could use a, a reel of tape and keep on recording, maybe two reels, depending on the length of the show, the same show. What do you do with that recording after you've got it? You listen to it. You analyse it. You decide whether the audience response, which you can hear on the tape, is good, bad, indifferent, whether they respond better to songs in a certain order, whether you've got too many or too little gaps, whether you've started off really on the wrong foot, is Hang On To Yourself the right song to begin with, or should you be beginning with Ziggy? Once you've made those decisions, you can say, okay, the next show we do, we'll do this set list and we'll see how that goes. And the next one, we'll do a different set list and we'll see how that goes. This is an experiment in getting your audience to tell you what their visceral reaction to the exercise is. Now, for the band, this was not that difficult because they knew all the songs For David, knowing which order the songs were going to go in really just meant he had to remember the opening chords of every song. If he wasn't playing the opening chord, let's, for example, say we start with Ziggy, well, that's easy. David plays the opening chords and sings the opening lyric. Everyone else just follows. On the other hand, if we start with Hang On To Yourself or we start with another track or title it might be Ronson who begins or it might be Trevor or it might be Woody but whichever one of them begins the others immediately know okay this is the song we're doing this is the opening and we're going to move on to the chorus so we've got to do this and that became the way forward Now, the idea of getting everyone involved in this exercise was way too clumsy. Ultimately, I knew it was always going to be my decision as to what the set list would be. And ultimately, David was not keen at the beginning on doing any of this because it was extra work. And David was always essentially averse to doing anything he didn't have to do. So it was always a little bit of a battle to say, David, we have to do this. And he'd say, well, 
we know what works and we know what we don't know what works actually all we know is sometimes we get a good audience and they'll love you whatever you do and sometimes you get an audience that don't like you period so that's not the problem the problem is what's the best balance of songs that will make it possible for us to get a wider and larger and more dedicated audience and that's about a theatrical experience now david although he'd done theater with lindsay he'd never done real theater in the sense of the discipline that comes in doing a play over and over and over again two nights a week sometimes three performances a day and having to recite the same lines and put passion into them and drama this was way beyond his actual capabilities <laughs> so it was a struggle on the other hand we had angela who always wanted to have a voice was completely incapable of understanding what the object of the exercise was so her voice was always just to try and persuade david to listen to me because i knew what i was doing rather than to actually offer any practical assistance the person who gave us the most guidance here was always actually ronson because mick first of all mick was capable of maintaining the entire set in his head as though it were just the arrangement for an orchestra from his perspective he knew exactly where every song began and ended and he recognized all the songs immediately so he didn't have a problem woody and trevor knew that if mick was playing it they were okay whereas if david was playing it he might have picked the wrong song so they had to be wary and so it became really about mick making the choice of song based on a set list that i'd given him and that the soundboard engineers and the folk who were doing the onstage miking and the onstage management all knew so Willie and Robin and Pete knew what the set was going to be in advance and that made it much easier for them to make sure that everybody had the right piece of equipment and the right instrument at the right time that made for a much smoother performance than you'd normally get from a band who were really just starting out it made them come across as very polished and once we started getting audiences in large numbers it had a very very immediate impact because the audience had only seen this from bands that had been working together for many years the beatles could do this but they had spent enormous amounts of time performing and rehearsing and recording the rolling stones could do this because they were a very tight band by the time they got to the point where they were playing in front of big audiences but the rolling stones in the 60s playing at the london school of economics were the worst band you've ever heard and people actually threw pennies at them they were so bad a penny was an english coin which was made of brass and copper and it was quite big and a very nasty thing to have hit you so if people were throwing pennies at you it was definitely not a good sign <laughs> they got better but they got better again through the old practice go on stage in front of six other acts 
which ultimately included Tina Turner and Ike and Tina Turner and then Iquette and go and do the bill in America and go around America and everybody did that Fleetwood Mac did it and every band did it Humble Pie did it we didn't I didn't want to do that I've been there I've seen that it was exhausting I just wasn't willing to do that <laughs> frankly I saw there was a better way if we could get David to become that Ziggy person or that Bowie person or whatever character he was playing as long as David was playing a character, you could actually get him to do all kinds of things that he wouldn't do when he was in his own space. And that's why he liked the sombrero. You could go to sombrero and be a completely different person, outrageous as you wanted to be. You could do this on stage if you had control. You couldn't do it if you were in a line of opening acts because you wouldn't have control. You wouldn't be able to control your sound check. You wouldn't be able to control your lights and your sound. You'd be at the mercy of whoever was the headliner. And this is where we changed the rules. We changed the rules for our own benefit. But February was a difficult month. We had a lot of things going on. Mike Leander was working on our first single, Superstar, which was the single for Jesus Christ Superstar. He was also working on the Marianne Faithful, Rich Kid Blues album. And these were both my projects. And so it was not a good time for me to be running off to America. But at the same time, I had to get a deal done with Clive Friggy. And I had to get RCA excited about Ziggy. And that meant getting on a plane, going to the States and talking to everybody. In those days, if you wanted to move a record company, you couldn't just call up Clive and have the conversation and, oh, yes, okay, we'll do that, da, 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 da. That came later, a lot later. What you had to do in the 60s and the 70s was go to New York and sit down with people and talk to them and say what you wanted to say and get them to do and get promises from them, extract that promise get their enthusiasm get them to tell you if they didn't like any of the tracks you've recorded if they wanted a shorter version for a single what do they want what do they need what do they have as the absolute opportunity here and will they support putting on an unknown artist in a solo concert at Carnegie Hall which by and large people like that's a crazy idea, but actually it was a really good idea. <laughs> so, so getting the younger folk, the Cats and the Martin Last and Bob Ring and all those people at RCA to agree was not a problem. It was the older group. It was Laganestra and Herb Holman and people who were used to doing it the old way. But they'd be persuaded if the young folk said... This is the way to go, because it was working. It was already beginning to show signs of... And, of course, we were not really telling them that we had 10 people, all of whom were actually on our team, going to a Bowie concert. We were leading them to the idea that there were 
hundreds of people coming and there would be thousands of people coming and eventually there were, but not really at this moment in time. So I'm in New York and I'm talking obviously to Norman, who, Norman Kurtz, who's our very colourful <laughs> lawyer, um, and he's helping me with the Iggy situation, he's helping me with Clive, he's helping me with RCA. He's generally providing me with an opportunity. I'm using RCA's offices as my offices because Dennis Katz has got this secretary called Barbara Falk, who's a very sweet girl, is a big Bowie fan already and is willing to do whatever needs to be done. And I'm busy trying to make sure that David checks his lyrics before they get printed onto a record sleeve because they can't be wrong and I've noticed very often that he's not checking them and they are ultimately not what he wrote not what he's singing and that needs to be fixed and he's not practicing his sax and if you don't practice a wind instrument can't play it it's as simple as that and David's lazy about practicing he doesn't like practicing and thinks he can just walk on and play well that doesn't work so there are lots of those issues that are going on, some large, some small. We start doing these February dates with William Morris as our agent. They have a broad view of agency, which says basically as long as we get a commission and the necessary elements are delivered, no problem. They're not thrilled about the idea of having riders. And this is the beginning of what becomes the very famous concert rider, which is now common in all live performance situations and many studio situations, where you actually tell the person who is either promoting the particular date or the person who's managing the venue or the people who are operating the venue exactly what they're expected to provide for your performance and you put it to them that if they don't provide these things the performance won't happen so rather than do a bad performance because you didn't have the piano you needed or the lights you needed or the sound equipment you needed if you're not providing it yourself in many cases we were providing those things but if you don't have a stage that's a certain height then you can't actually deliver the performance that we wanted to deliver. It's no good having a stage that's a dance hall stage or a ballroom stage. They're not appropriate for this kind of concert. If you don't have drum risers, your drum is going to be hidden behind the rest of the <laughs> So there are lots of things that needed to happen, and we, or I, developed very detailed riders which William Morris then gave to promoters who often ignored them or couldn't provide them. And then, of course, William Morris and I got into a bit of a dispute over the fact that they were booking dates in venues like ballrooms, which simply didn't have the right facilities. And there was no way you could replace a revolving stage in a ballroom with a stage that was actually the right size, shape and height to do what we were doing. And the ballroom itself had the wrong audience in the first place. People go to ballrooms, or they did in those days, to get a drink and find a partner. They don't, and dance. They don't actually go to listen to a 
rock concert and be dedicated fans of an alien space group. That's not what ballrooms were about. So that wasn't a good idea. Colleges were a great idea. We did a, a very nice date at Imperial College, one of the better colleges in London. We did Kingston. We did many other polytechnics and colleges. A lot of them had good attendances. Some of them had terrible attendances. We did other venues where, as I said before, our audience was literally people we brought along, people who worked for us, with us, even the wives and girlfriends of people. So, for example, Peter Gerber was working with me at GEM, and his wife Anne was made friends with my girlfriend Melanie, and she started coming to the concerts. She was a fan. She was there. And this is indicative of what was going on. So you'd have girlfriends of the road crew or wives of the road crew coming along to the concerts because they wanted to support the exercise, be part of it. And that became a very important factor because ultimately that encouraged other people who were real fans to start coming to these concerts. And then you could create these fan clubs. And we had many, many different fan clubs in England, for instance. So you'd have a fan club just in one place like Coventry. And that would be the Coventry chapter of the Ziggy fan club or the Bowie fan club. And they would go and round up people. So if we went to Coventry or anywhere close to Coventry, we could expect an audience. And this became a very important factor going forward because you can't do worthwhile live concerts without an audience that are on your side. If you have to win them over every time, it's a huge battle. You need them to be fans from the beginning. And that's what David got to very quickly within that first year of doing the UK concerts, that first tour. We did over 100 concerts, possibly as many as 140. And many times we went back and did cities that we'd done before, and did venues that we'd done before, and filled them where before they were largely empty. David got massively disappointed when audiences didn't show up. David was always very much a creature of the moment. So if, if a bad thing happened, he would go into a total tailspin and decline and then Angela would have to go and reassure him that it was all okay and I would tell him look this is what happens you're going to have to go through this until you don't later on when we had to do two performances in, a, in a, an evening or one in the afternoon one in the evening, we would start doing matinees because we couldn't actually accommodate the number of people who wanted to see him and then he complained about the stress of having to do two performances on the same day. And I said, you know, six months ago, you were complaining nobody was coming. Now you're complaining too many people are coming. You can't, you know, you, you must make a balance here where if the audience want to see you, you'll have to play for them. And if they don't, you'll still have to play for them. That's your job. Your job is to perform, entertain, be Ziggy for the moment, be Ziggy. And eventually, of course, he got tired of that because it was like a strain and a stress. And David was always in that space where he would, he wants fame and fortune. 
He wants to be important. He wants to be noticed, but not too much. Tony, it's hard to imagine now, but 50 years ago, the Bowie tickets on that tour were 60p and all your transactions were in cash. There's a great spreadsheet that you've got from the Main Man Archive that shows some nights there was no income at all and it was very much a hand-to-mouth existence. Yes, it was. I mean, we literally, when we started doing these concerts in January and February and all the way through, except for when I was occasionally absent in America, but those were always quick trips, I was the driver the bouncer, the manager, and the ticket collector for the day. And gradually we got people to come on board. Don Hunter, for example, who'd who'd been on board with us trying to get Stevie Wonder as our artist, which didn't work out. Then Don decided that he would stay in the UK and carry on working with us. And he became a very significant part of the entire Bowie delivery in a sense because he understood although he hadn't done it so much in England he had come to England with other with Motown acts in the past in fact Don was very friendly with Elton John's then partner and sometime manager John Reed because John was in charge of the Motown label at EMI and EMI had distribution of the Motown label in the UK so what happened was John got um, Reg, I mean Elton, (laughs) um, to do piano for all these Motown dates, for as many as he could. And so he and Don knew each other well. So here was Don who not only experienced large-scale dates in America and club dates in America, but also experienced large-scale dates in the UK and Europe. So he was very capable of handling the William Morris situation, for example, of handling promoters and also supervising the whole exercise. So he was somebody I could rely on to go on the road when I wasn't there and do those things I would otherwise do. And everyone, he was very well liked, Don. He was popular with everybody. Everyone got on with him. And he was also well respected because he knew what he was doing. So... That made a huge difference. A little later on, we got Nicky Graham, who came through Bill Wyman and Tucky Buzzard and that whole venture. And Nicky, when Tucky Buzzard literally broke up, Nicky came and also started working with us and was the piano player because we didn't have a piano player to begin with. We either bring piano players on or we used to switch between David, whose piano playing was really bad, and Mick, whose piano playing was excellent, but that meant we had to arrange songs in order of who's going to play the piano, and that wasn't ideal. So when Nicky Graham came along, we were able to say, okay, we've got an excellent keyboard player here, and he could play piano and organ and other keyboards quite happily, but he could also do that same job of being a stage manager, a gig manager, a cash collector, and occasionally driving the band. So he had all those qualities that were needed. So Don and Nicky became very helpful in terms of giving me the space I needed because there were a lot of things I needed to do that weren't involved in actually going and watching dates, although I did go to almost all of those UK dates one way or another when I was there. 
So, for example, in this case, I had arranged to go to New York with a copy master tape of what we'd recorded for Ziggy, which was the entire recording. But then we went and fixed some of the recordings and re-recorded some, remastered some. But this was an opportunity to give RCI a chance to listen to the new songs and make those choices that they could make before we went and finalised the album and started making acetates and pressing records. But the days of vinyl meant you had to make a reference acetate. You had to play it only a few times. As soon as you played it more than half a dozen times, it was destroyed. And then you had to go from there to see, okay, can we press this? Because that's when you would find out if you had a problem with a particular track, a particular uh, instrument, something that you couldn't actually overcome in the pressing process then you'd have to go back and remaster. So these are all things that had to happen. And at the end of the day, most people didn't really understand the entire process from studio to acetate, to reference, to master, to making a mother, a stamper, a matrix, and an actual capable pressing. Making a limited run of pressings was easy because it didn't matter if they weren't perfect. But making actual records you were going to sell in stores, people didn't want to take home a record and discover there was a sudden hiss on track two or a sudden bump in track three. (laughs) They wanted it to be perfect. And it could be perfect, but it's a lot of work to make it perfect. You needed people like um, George Marino at Sterling Sound, who we used for years, who was an expert. All he did was engineer acetate masters for stamping he engineered the stamp but if you don't have someone who does just that job and they're actually really excellent at it all the other stuff you've done all the money you've spent in the studio all the time you've spent rehearsing all the time you've spent recording are all just down the drain and that happened to a lot of acts a lot of acts made bad vinyl records and never recovered so that was another area of expertise that you had to be willing to adopt and follow and hire people and hire the best possible people to do the exercise. And that's what we did. And that's why Ziggy and Hunky Dory were both excellent vinyl albums. They had very good qualities, very good reception. And even today, if you take an old album from the 70s and listen to it on a good deck, you'll get a great sound. You mentioned how some venues like colleges were often better than suburban ballrooms or dance halls. One of those nights was Imperial College in London, which was packed and well-reviewed. It was also the first time that David tried to emulate Iggy Pop and walk on the audience's hands. Yeah, in fact, nobody had done it in England. I don't think anyone ever walked on their audience in England. It was something that Iggy originally did at a... And this this was the real problem. Iggy knew what he was doing. Iggy had done what came to be stage diving before. And he actually prepared himself and the audience because he stood on stage and he had a big tub of peanut butter and a bottle of baby oil. And he stripped down to his silver leather pants, which is all he was wearing, I think some silver gloves, and covered himself in peanut butter and baby oil. When he walked into the crowd, he slipped down between the people. But because they pushed against each other to get to him, he popped up again. 
So he literally was able to walk on the crowd, drop into the crowd and get pushed up again. David hadn't done any of that. He missed that part of the exercise. (laughs) And he effectively thought that he could simply walk onto people's outstretched hands, which you can do, but only if the people with the outstretched hands are rehearsed and trained and practiced in that, because it needs everyone to have their hands at the right place at the right time and to keep on doing that and as a by and large audiences are not able to do that so you very rarely you see people stage diving but of course they just fall into the audience and they do catch you in david's case they dropped him so he had sort of he was ended up on the floor as opposed to ending up walking on the audience but they were very in a way, I think they were very impressed by the fact that he tried it. And, and when he got back on stage, there was a big sort of rush towards the stage to get to him. So it was the beginning of the what he became a much safer mode after that was where he wouldn't try and walk on the audience, but he'd come to the very edge of the stage and he'd offer them his guitar or he'd offer them his hand. And this was always part of rock and roll suicide and to lean out and offer your hand to the audience and or let them feel your guitar and then Mick started doing the same thing he'd let the audience try and reach out and get to his guitar and that became a very um, good audience experience because people were looking forward to it they were waiting for it they're like that's the climax of the show the big ending so it became a nice big ending Rock and Roll Suicide was a great ending Best ending ever, actually. Great memories of those fantastic early Ziggy Stardust dates in February of 1972. That spreadsheet that I mentioned that lists all the takings from those early dates is on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.